and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Kate Wolf, and I'm joined by my co-host today, Eric Newman. Hi, Kate. Hi, Eric. And this week, we're speaking with Sarah Schulman about her new book, Let the Record Show, A Political History of Act Up New York, 1987 through 1993. So this is, as we call it, it's a doorstopper of a book. Um, It's (laughs) enormous. It's over 700 pages. But I will say that it is a fascinating and really inspiring history of the ACT UP movement, you know, which as we get into in the interview has kind of been misrepresented in contemporary media. Um, and that's part of one of the many correctives that this book offers, but it's also a fascinating and well-written personal history. So it really takes you inside the rhythms and organization of a profound and radical activist movement. Yes. Yes. And, and uh, despite its length, it does breeze by. Totally. Um, and certainly it made me feel like, what am I doing with my life? I need to be organizing like all the time because um, it's so inspiring what members of ACT UP were able to accomplish. Um, it made me feel did. the exact same way, Kate. So it's nice to hear you say that because it did make yeah. me feel like, what am I doing with myself? I like exactly. all these people were able to hold down multiple jobs and create this kind of, you know, world redefining activism that changed the face of HIV AIDS, not only in the United States, but in the world in its moment and in the decades beyond. Yeah, it's it's an amazing story. And let's listen to the interview. Let's do it. We're thrilled to be speaking with the writer Sarah Schulman today. Sarah is the author of more than 20 works of fiction, nonfiction, and theater that include the novels After Dolores, which received an American Library Association Stonewall Book Award in 1989, People in Trouble, Rap Bohemia, and The Cosmopolitans, which was named one of the best American novels of 2016 by Publishers Weekly. Some of her groundbreaking nonfiction titles include Ties That Bind, Familial Homophobia and Its Consequences, The Gentrification of the Mind, Witness to a Lost Imagination, and conflict is not abuse, overstating harm, community responsibility, and the duty of repair. She's also been the producer and screenwriter of several documentaries, and currently she's a distinguished professor of the humanities at the College of Staten Island, as well as a fellow at the New York Institute of Humanities. She's also a longtime activist who joined the AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power, known as ACT UP, in 1987. Her new book, which we'll be discussing today, is Let the Record Show, a political history of ACT UP New York, 1987 through 1993. It's a focused yet exceedingly thorough look at ACT UP's organizational tactics, its diverse range of members and intersecting causes, and its profound impact in fighting for access to treatment and more national attention for people with AIDS at a time when the U.S. government was barely addressing the crisis. The book builds on over 200 oral histories Sarah and her collaborator and fellow act-upper Jim Hubbard conducted with former members. In an ecstatic review, the New York Times wrote that the book is not reverent definitive history. This is a tactician's Bible. Welcome to the show, Sarah. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. I'm a big fan. Well, equally us as well. I mean, we are very humbled by your presence today and humbled, frankly, after reading through this incredible book where you have gathered together, as Kate was saying, 
both the good and the bad. I mean, one of the things that I love so much about the book is that it is forthrightly, it's not a hagiography. It is a celebration in some moments, but it's also a critique in other moments. Like it's very even-handed and looking for what's useful. So to kind of open it up, there's a quote at the early part of the book. You're reflecting on the period and you say that AIDS activism was the last successful social movement in America. So to kind of get us started, can you explain a little bit what you mean by that and what the metrics for success in social movements are as you see them? Well, maybe we have to set up a little bit what the context of AIDS was before ACT UP came on the scene so we can understand what their contribution was. So we now know that AIDS probably existed in humans at the turn of the 20th century, probably came to the U.S. in the 1940s, and probably was in New York in the 60s and 70s. But science did not recognize the pattern of infection until around 1981. So that's what we call the beginning of AIDS, but it's not Mm -hmm. at all the beginning of AIDS. By the time the New York Times reported on July 3rd, 1981, of 41 cases of a rare cancer, we think there were already 200,000 people infected in the United States. So this disease comes on this scene at a time when gay people who were only one constituency that was affected by AIDS had absolutely no rights. And it's very important for people to understand what the conditions were for gay people and gay men in 1981, because now we discuss people based on their demographics. So we have this category, white gay man, white gay man, and that's supposed to be bad. You know, it signals privilege. But in 1981, gay people had no legal rights whatsoever. In New York City, there was no job protection. You could lose your apartment. You could be denied public accommodation, which is restaurant service and hotels. Familial homophobia was a huge social force. It made people have to leave their countries and leave their hometowns. Gay sex was not federally made legal until 2003. Mm-hmm. So there was no representation in mainstream culture that was authentic. And media, private sector, and the government were almost entirely white male. And if you were a gay man, you were in the closet. So that was the context. And the first five years of AIDS, 40,000 people died in the United States, and the government did absolutely nothing. And pharma, pharmaceutical companies did absolutely nothing because they held patents to failed cancer drugs that they were trying to recycle to try to get this huge new market without having to do any new research. Mm -hmm. So there was nothing happening. The gay community was in chaos. People were just trying to help each other, you know, get food. There was no real political response until ACT UP was formed in March of 1987. So that's already six years into the crisis. So that's when ACT UP comes on the scene. And within quite a very short period of time, they were able to accomplish huge changes. I mean, not only was research on how treatments were developed completely changed, where instead of recycling old medications, ACT UP forced a look at what was called opportunistic infection. So let me just explain what AIDS is. AIDS is a terrible disease and it's a horrible death. Basically, it means that you have no immune system. So people, very young people, would develop blindness, dementia, swollen nerves. They lost the ability to retain nutrition. 
your face could become mottled by skin cancer. And so all of these symptoms that I just described were opportunistic infections. These were the, what actually made people die. The word AIDS is kind of like the word cancer. It's an umbrella term. So ACTIVE restructured how research for treatments was approached. But that's not all. ACTIVE ran a four-year campaign to change the government's definition of AIDS so that women could qualify for benefits and for experimental drug trials. And what that means, that victory means, is that today every woman with HIV in the world who takes a medication is taking something that was tested on women because of ACTUP's campaign. Right. ACTUP started needle exchange in New York City and completely transformed the question of HIV being transmitted by needles. ACTUP started Housing Works, which is the program for homeless people with AIDS. ACTUP took on the Catholic Church mm-hmm. at a time when the Catholic Church really controlled the city. And also, and this is you know, more an emotional thing, but ACTIP really transformed how gay people, how queer people, and how people with AIDS saw themselves and were seen by the world. So these are very significant victories, and they have changed the world for people with HIV. What ACTIP did not accomplish is that although AIDS activism, the broader coalition of AIDS activism of which ACTIP was a part, was able eventually to defeat HIV. They could not defeat capitalism. And so the profit margin of pharmaceutical companies still dominates. So the question of access is really one of the areas in which we failed. And that's what we should also say that in the early days, at least, of ACT UP, part of the vision was universal health care. So specifically things that we are still kind of rallying for today are things that started to be, and same thing with harm reduction, which you mentioned in terms of the needle exchange. Like those are discourses that now feel very familiar to, you know, individuals, younger people living in the present that were kind of seeded out by ACT UP. Right, although it's important for people to understand where a predominantly queer movement sat in terms of the larger coalition that was necessary to create a logical healthcare system. Because at that time, I mean, the reason that there was an autonomous gay movement in the first place is because no other progressive movements would allow gay people to be part of them. So, you know, there were many people in ACT UP who had a lot of political experience and a wide range of movements, but mostly they were in the closet in those movements. And people did not want to work with queer people. They didn't want us in their organizations and they didn't want us to be in coalition with them. So ACT UP would have had to reach a certain stature, which I think it did reach, in order to be able to be part of creating a very, very broad coalition for universal health care in the United States. Unfortunately, that's when we fell apart. Well, maybe you could talk about, you know, you say in the book that AIDS activism is kind of misplaced under gay history alone. How have we mischaracterized, you know, ACT UP, other forms of activism around AIDS? And maybe you could just speak to how those actions relate to the much longer history of civil rights in the country. And also, you know, just maybe how putting it aside in that one category undercuts some of the impact and the coalition around it. You know, it seems convenient that we think of it only one way. Well, ACTUP was primarily a white gay male organization, but it was not exclusively a white gay male organization. And that difference is very significant because the women and people of color in ACT UP tended to have much more political experience 
than the younger white gay men who often had no political experience before they came to ACT UP. So the idea that a political movement is discrete and only exists within a closed frame is untrue. Movements are heavily influenced by previous movements. And in the case of ACT UP, there were really two strains of influence that are very significant. So one is the people in ACT UP and the movements they participated in before. So for example, there were quite a few people who had been in Latin American anti-fascist movements. This is the time of the dictatorships in Chile and Argentina, people who had been in the Mexico City student movement, people who had come from black liberation and civil rights movements, Congress for Racial Equality, on Racial Equality Corps, the Black Panthers, a lot of people who came from reproductive rights movement and also from the women's peace movement. So these individuals, and I name them, came to ACT UP and brought in very specific skills, how to do civil disobedience training, the concept of patient-centered politics, where people with AIDS were the experts and we would look at things from their point of view. This came from the feminist women's health movement and there were specific activists who had been working in health clinics who brought this politic in. ACT UP had a lot of educationals that people would learn to think politically and learn to act politically. But there's also like a larger zeitgeist influence, which is that most many people in ACT UP were born in the 50s or the 60s. And as young gay children in the 1960s, there was no concept of a gay identity or that there was a gay community out there for you somewhere or that there was gay politics. But what we saw growing up was images of black resistance on television, in Life magazine, or some of us had families who participated in those movements. And we saw people doing direct action. We saw people doing nonviolent civil disobedience actions. And for us, I think there was an identification as queer children with those tactics. So later, when we look back at important articles like Martin Luther King's letter from Birmingham jail, where he defines direct action, we can see that it's the exact same definition that ACT UP had. And we did it the same way, but we didn't realize it. We never talked about it overtly. We never had study groups on letter from Birmingham jail, but it was something that people had internalized in that generation. I think in a related way, I mean, there's so many moments that as I read through them, I found them deeply moving, but also really provocative and challenging. And at least one of those things that comes up, and I'm talking here about just the structure of ACT UP, which is maybe even the wrong word to use, because there is these kind of multiple different, you call them affinity groups or kind of like mini subsets of ACT UP that are functioning within the broad umbrella. And in many cases you point out, so when Moises and others are working within the Latino caucus, they, at the same time, they can both see ACT UP as part of their specific affinity group and what it's doing, but then also ACT UP as this larger group and the kind of differences between those things. So I want to talk about the kind of, not quite anarchic, but the almost rhizomatic structure of ACT UP from a political perspective. And then also to pick up on what you were saying before, what is so refreshing to hear in your history is how at the basic root level, ACT UP and its individual activists let the theory or philosophy of the group come out of action. So it always prioritizes action, which is something that perhaps coming from more of an academic context where that relationship is reversed, where its action should be derived from theory. 
I find that really refreshing and putting the emphasis on action actually lets you get real things done in the world rather than playing with abstract concepts. Well, one of the most influential leaders in ACT UP was Maxine Wolf, And she used to say theory emerges from action, mm-hmm. which means you decide your action. And then as you're planning it, you have to make decisions. And those decisions are made based on your values. And so it gives you a chance to cohere your values. And that's how ACT UP operated because it was a constituency movement of people with AIDS and they had immediate needs. The death rates in ACT UP were constant and it was people with AIDS that determined the agenda. So they knew what they needed and that's what we had to fight for. And it was very immediate. And so there was really no time for theory and it wouldn't have made sense in that context. You had to be as effective as possible. Now, the way the organization was structured was that every Monday night, there was a meeting. And at first it was held at the Lesbian and Gay Center. The meetings were usually between three to 700 people. Technically, there was a rule that you had to be at three meetings before you could vote, but nobody ever tried to enforce it because that was a bureaucratic <laughs> thing and nobody had time for that. The meetings were run by facilitators who were elected by the floor. And the agenda was set by the coordinating committee. It was not called a steering committee because nobody wanted to be steered. So there were committees in ACT UP that you could join. It would be like the Actions Committee or the Majority Action Committee, which was people of color in ACT UP, or a fundraising committee. And each of these committees would send somebody to the coordinating committee. They would coordinate the organization and they would set the agenda for Monday nights. But there was an entirely other sector of organizing, which were affinity groups. These were groups of people, like-minded people, maybe 15 to 20 people who would meet at each other's houses, who would plan their own ways of participating in larger act of events. What they did did not have to be approved by the floor. They could do whatever they wanted. And so let's say if ACTUP would organize an action at the Food and Drug Administration to demand access to experimental drugs, and the coordinating committee would coordinate this action, but affinity groups would plan these sort of small actions of civil disobedience or artistic expressions that would come and be a surprise to everyone else at the movement. And so those small groups ended up being very, very close emotionally. Often if people were dying, their affinity group would become a care group, for example. And ACTUP would provide legal services to those groups, but those groups were not accountable to the Monday night meeting. So there was a lot of different arenas in which you could express yourself. But ACT UP was always quite small. The largest demonstration we ever had was at St. Patrick's Cathedral, and that was 7,000 people. So it really shows you it was not a mass movement. It was, you know, a vanguard movement. And because it was so focus on being effective. That's why it accomplished so much. And it had such visibility in media. I mean, that's another part of the story is how savvy and sometimes through trial and error, ACT UP, especially the kind of media folks that were inside of the movement, really had a quite sophisticated way of understanding how to use media. Maybe we could talk about Zaps. I would be curious for you to explain what ZAPs were and how they were different than other actions. Because, you know, from being a child in the 80s, what I know of ACT UP is, you know, like putting the condom on Jesse Helms' house or definitely the Stop the Church event, the Stock Exchange event, things like that that are seem more almost, you know, very theatrical in a sense. And 
I wonder if that's exactly what zaps were and if that was ever uh, something that, you know, people disagreed about in terms of the oh. effectiveness of a zap. A zap is a tactic that came from the gay liberation movement. And the most famous zap was when gay people zapped the American Psychiatric Association for maintaining that homosexuality was a disease. So it had a gay liberation history but what it really shows you, a zap is something that people who do not expect to be rewarded by the system do. Because if you think you're going to get a job at the New York Times, you don't zap the New York Times, right? But if you know that you are outside of power, then you can do a zap. And a zap is basically, like, for example, somebody who was working as Santa Claus at Macy's got fired because he was HIV positive. So an affinity group inside ACT UP called Action Tours 25 of them dressed up as Santas, went to Macy's, chained themselves to Macy's and started singing Santa Claus has HIV, you know, to demand that this person get his job back. That's a zap. It's like a one-time thing and you just go in there. It's not part of building a campaign. So for building a campaign, you really do need sophisticated media. So let me just get back to that for a minute because people need to understand that at that time, there was nothing truthful about queer people or people with AIDS in the media. It was all false. But something happened in the middle of ACT UP, which was the invention of the camcorder. And that really changed everything because ACT UP was the place that video activism began. You know, so when you look at my collaborator, Jim Hubbard, has preserved thousands of hours of footage of ACT UP. And when you look at the very early footage, people were still shooting on 16 millimeter and Super 8 film. There was no technique for recording from a television set. So people were aiming film cameras at the TV screen and filming it to try to record what was on television. Then came beta video, which were these huge decks that were like the size of a piece of luggage that one person would carry. And then these big boom microphones that another person would carry. And that was how you shot video. And then the camcorder was invented. And finally, activists could really shoot our own media. And this is really what changed everything. That ACTA produced its own video and its own media. We also had very sophisticated media people. And in the book, I go into great detail about how you develop a media strategy. And we had people who came from advertising industry, who were graphic designers, people who had worked at People Magazine, people who had worked at CBS, you know, people who really understood what was going on with media. Like one of the things in my book is Anne Northrup, who was an important leader in ACT UP, she had worked at CBS and she knew that the soundbite was not the important part of the interview. The important part of the interview was how the reporter set up the question. And so educating that reporter to ask the right question was the work, you know, not having a spokesperson because in ACT UP, every person was a spokesperson. We didn't have designated spokespeople. So, you know, it was really, and it was a very sophisticated discourse. But I also want to talk about some really interesting element of media change represented by a photographer named Donna Binder. And I'm really happy to introduce her to history. So Donna was a photojournalist who would go out and shoot all these demonstrations and she'd go home to her dark room, develop the photographs and take them to the photo editors at the offices of U.S. News and World Report, USA Today, and all this stuff. And they wanted photos of emaciated, dying people with AIDS lying in their beds. And she would show them photos of people fighting until the day they died and say, these are photos of people with AIDS. 
that she would have that personal confrontation with the editors to try to make them understand that we needed to have a paradigmatic change in representation. And after ACT UP disrupted mass at St. Patrick's Cathedral in 1989, suddenly the photo editors got it. And that's when you see the real changes in what kinds of photos they ran of people with AIDS. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, recorded remotely. We've been speaking with Sarah Schulman, author of Let the Record Show, Political History of ACT UP New York, 1987 through 1993. We'll return to that conversation in just a moment, but first we have this week's book recommendation. Helen Oyeyemi on the line with us today. Helen's new novel is called Pieces, and she's joining us to give us a book recommendation. Helen, what book are you going to recommend? I am going to recommend To Be Continued or Conversations with a Toad by James Robertson. It's a wonderful, funny, strange, deeply thinkative. I don't know if thinkative is a word, but that's what I think this novel is novel about a man it opens with a man realizing that he's turned 50 and he's on a bus and he realizes that nobody cares including him and so it's a kind of you think it's going to be a quintessential midlife crisis novel but it actually turns into something a lot richer and sweeter and deeper than that he begins having conversations with a toad that is um in his garden <laughs> the toad knows a lot more than any toad should there's an odyssey, like a little bit of a quest to interview um, a hundred-year-old lady in the Scottish Highlands. Everything like ends up back in Edinburgh, which is where it began. Like it, everything goes full circle, and it's a sort of it's very good about the aspects of life that are planned, but also the parts that just absolutely can't be foreseen. And there's something about the conversation format that is just very, very appealing and revealing at the same time. So I highly recommend it. That sounds wonderful. Will you tell us the title of the book again and the author? The title of the book is To Be Continued or Conversations with a Toad. And the author is James Robertson. Thank you so much, Helen. Thank you. We've been speaking with Helen Oyoyemi. Her new book is called Pieces. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Sarah Schulman, author of Let the Record Show. Obviously, one of the things that as a gay man myself, I, you know, but who who grew up and really came of age in the kind of mid-90s in a way so that my generation is that in between where it's like we don't, you know, we were children, so we don't have a direct experience of a of HIV or AIDS. It, it, during the, sorry, it's an ongoing epidemic, but during the kind of peak period um, in the 80s and until we get the antiretrovirals in 1996, which really changes the whole situation. Um, so, you know, when, when I was growing up, we didn't have that much connection, right? A lot of what we were, condoms, condoms, condoms was what we were told. And then also this is a, there was definitely the gay stigma part, but at the same time also Magic Johnson has it and he's doing fine. He's got, you know, drug therapies and all of that. So, you know, again, like my generation has lost like so many potential mentors. And that's not just in terms of history, which I'm endlessly grateful to people like yourself who, you know, both who survived that period and who record and keep that history for us. 
Um, but we've also lost a sense of the connection to the politics of that time, specifically to the, I think for many, uh, I'll just say for many gay men of my generation and younger, I think it ex the politics of uh, the Gay Liberation Front, uh, liberation in general, but also kind of act up, it exists in a kind of fantasy land of mostly TV representation. So, you know, as somebody who sees how incredibly useful this history is, you know, how do you think that it can be incorporated into contemporary social movements? And what do you see as the challenges facing contemporary social movements? Yes, thank you so much for that question, because the number one reason this book exists is to help contemporary movements by giving them this activist history that mm. is so hard to get. This is not about nostalgia. This is not a traditional history. This is about saying which tactics and strategies we use that worked and which ones didn't. And this is information that's so, so difficult to come upon. So I think, that, let me just summarize what I think are some of the real takeaway pieces of information from ACT UP. Number one, ACT UP was not a consensus-based movement. This is so important. Uh, it was not a movement that expected everybody to agree on one analysis or to do one strategy or even to use the same words. It had a one-line statement of unity, direct action to end the AIDS crisis. And that was direct action as opposed to social service provision. So if what you were doing was direct action to end the AIDS crisis, you could do it. So if you wanted to go do illegal needle exchange to get arrested and do a test case to make needle exchange available in New York City, and I thought that was terrible, I just wouldn't do it. I wouldn't try to stop you from doing it. And then instead, if I wanted to disrupt mass at St. Patrick's Cathedral and you thought that was awful, you just wouldn't go. There was not this dynamic of trying to stop each other from doing things. And so because of that, there was a kind of radical democracy that allowed for a big tent politic. And there were so many different kinds of actions going on at the same time. So many different kinds of campaigns that I couldn't write the book chronologically because it wouldn't have made any sense because so much was happening at once. And it's that simultaneity that radical democracy allows for that is in fact the thing that helps you be successful. So, you know, the, when you look historically at movements that have tried to force homogeneity, they, they all fail. And there's no, there's no exception. It, because people can only be where they're at. And that's like a very human insight. And believe me, I wish everybody was where I'm at, but they're not and they never will be. People have their own take on things. And what you want is a movement that is going to facilitate small groups of like-minded people being able to be effective in running the campaigns and doing the work that they feel makes sense instead of trying to force them to fit into analysis that does not resonate with them. So that is the number one lesson, big tent, radical democracy, no consensus. The second thing is, was we talked about direct action instead of theory, very, very important. And, you know, I think the, the next step is that People with AIDS are the experts. The idea that whoever is being impacted on by the oppressive system, their experience has to be what dictates the, the agenda of the movement. Just on a kind of craft technical level, the book is so amazingly structured because it is not really like one long story. It's so many stories. It reflects the non-hierarchical aspect of ACT UP. And I've noticed this kind of in your other books too. Like I feel like there's a lot of guardrails 
And like, I don't know why I think of it spatially, but almost like you have little balconies and you're like, okay, here's this spot and here's this spot. So it kind of breaks up that drive to narrative that, um, that you would get lost in and maybe kind of lose some of your critical thinking during that as well. Um, I'm just, so I, I guess I'm curious to hear you talk about, especially when there's a, a you know, a pedagogical intent, how does that affect the way you structure your books and, and the way you write them and just, and, and, and dealing with so much information? Um, how did you do that? Thank you so much for bringing that up. So, you know, I'm a novelist primarily and I never had any training. I didn't go to an MFA program. I never even had a writing class. So I'm one of these people where my fiction style has just evolved organically through time. And when I wrote my very first novel in 1984, the Sophie Horowitz story, somebody interviewed me and asked me about the use of pastiche in the book. And I had never heard the word pastiche and I didn't know what it was. <laughs> so that's how it all started. My second novel, Girls, Visions and Everything, which came out in 1986, was an experimental novel. I've written traditional realist novels. I've written historical fiction. I've written literary fiction. I've written detective novels. But I've also written very formally inventive novels. One of my favorite is 1992, Empathy, was a novel that I really feel very good about. Another one was called The Mere Future that, um, that was recently published, in, I think, in the last 10 or 15 years. So I've done a lot of the formal experimentation over the years. And, you know, the, when the more you write, the, the bigger your palette gets. And I really have been able to understand how to do this. Also, I'm a great fan of experimental film. Jim Hubbard and I founded MIX, the uh, Queer Experimental Film Festival in 1987, and it lasted for 33 years. It was only COVID that knocked it down. So I've been looking at formerly inventive work all my whole adult life, and it's really helped me get to deeper truths through formal invention. And so my experience of writing these novels is what's helped me write nonfiction books that are inventing, I hope, new territory. And I'm just curious also to follow up on that. Like, in some ways, you write, you address here the way that ACT UP, the story of ACT UP in, in some depictions has been much more about these heroic men who, you know, were leading the organization. And I just also think in terms of looking back at AIDS, um, there seems always to be an emphasis or often an emphasis on, on the gruesome aspects of the disease, you know, that that becomes the driver of the story, you know. Um, so how did, you know, maybe you could talk about your your take on the way you think AIDS and AIDS history has been depicted more generally and, and how that's not always correct. Well, my understanding of the story is that this is the story of a despised group of people with no rights who were abandoned by their families and their government, facing a terminal disease for which there were no treatments, who joined together and forced the country to change against its will. That's my story. What's come up in recent years has been the John Wayne American narrative of the heroic white male individual hero. So, you know, we've had the stories of the five great white men who led AIDS activism to its, you know, conclusion. Or um, if you look at, you know, the most successful corporate representations of AIDS, it's usually the poor, alone, gay man, perhaps abandoned by his lover, who has no community and no political movement, and the heroic heterosexual person who comes in and 
and overcomes his prejudices to save the poor, abandoned, alone gay guy. The worst example would be Philadelphia by Jonathan Demme, which won the Oscar amazingly. But, you know, where Tom Hanks plays a gay man who needs a lawyer, so he goes to a homophobic lawyer, Denzel Washington. Why didn't he just go to a gay lawyer, which is what people actually did? Because the conceit of the movie is that there are no gay lawyers. There's only straight people who can rescue you. You know, this type of story that we've been told over and over and over to endless reward. And it has no no relationship to reality. You have been working on this book for 17 years. Is that right? Not really. Um, (laughs) I mean, I did not intend to write this book. So, I mean... You know, I've been writing about AIDS since around 1982. I was a city hall reporter for the male newspaper. And the issue that I was covering was that there was no gay rights bill in New York City. So I was going to city hall. Mayor Koch was the mayor at the time. And then AIDS came on the scene. And so I just happened to be there. So I started covering all these AIDS-related stories. Interestingly, I was assigned to cover the closing of the bathhouses by the city, which mm. sort of tells you how crazy everything was, because I had never been in a bathhouse. They didn't let me right. into bathhouses. <laughs> but, you know, reporters were dying. Editors were dying. My editor at the Village Voice, Robert Massa, gave mm. me my final edit in his apartment in his pajamas because he was too sick to go to the office. Mm. And people didn't even know what the stories were. The mainstream media was ignoring everything. So I ended up covering the closing of the bathhouses. But, you know, I covered um, pediatric AIDS, women with AIDS, homeless people with AIDS. By the time ACT UP was founded in 1987, I'd already been writing about AIDS for five years. Then, you know, I covered more stories after protease inhibitors in 96. I moved on. I started to write about AIDS and gentrification. I wrote, written most recently about HIV criminalization. Um, and then in 2001, Jim and I realized that the internet revolution that had taken place really at the end of the 90s had left ACT UP in the dust because none of our materials were digitized. Mm. So you could search ACT UP and find nothing. And it was like we had never existed. People who were writing about AIDS, very few of them were, but the ones who were doing it were citing the New York Times, which we called the New York Crimes. You know, so there was a horrible lack of data. So we decided to start interviewing people to try to create some kind of data that a mysterious other person would interpret in the mm-hmm. future and create material out of. And Urvashi Vad, uh, who is a, a great leader of our movement, was working at the Ford Foundation, and she had the vision to really make the Act of Oral History Project something huge. And she got us the funding. So Jim and I started interviewing people. And over the next 18 years, we interviewed 188 people. And our website has had over 14 million hits, you know, but we just kept waiting for these people to come along and like do something with these interviews and they never did. And we kept trying to find someone to write a book and we couldn't find anybody. And then this, the misrepresentation started. Yeah. And we started to see this, you know, whitening and uh, this really narrowing story that was not going to be helpful to anybody because telling people that individuals are what makes movements succeed is not going to lead anyone to success. So it, it became a state of emergency. And finally, Jim and I decided I was just going to have to do this. So it took like three years. I started rereading all the interviews. I had conducted almost all of them. And I started just cohering and pulling out tropes. So that's how the book happened. But I I really was trying not to do it. (laughs) Well, we're very glad that you did. Thank you. Um, 
Maybe you could talk a little bit about how ACT UP ultimately ended and um, how, you know, as someone who'd been with it for so long, how that affected or hit you and um, if you- Well, ACT UP actually has never ended. ACT UP New York still exists. Um, But what happened was around 1992, 12 people who were key figures in ACT UP left the movement and they started their own organization called TAG, Treatment Action Group, which still exists to this day. And even though that they left hundreds of people behind in ACT UP, it was devastating emotionally and the group really diminished. And then when the advent of protease inhibitors in 1996, which is the beginning of treatments that we have now, or if you're become HIV positive, you can live a normal lifespan if you have access to treatments. Um, with, at that point, it kind of, you know, really diminished. Also, AIDS activism was very much co-opted by the Democratic Party when Clinton was elected. And, you know, some, a lot of people moved into bureaucracies and government positions and this sort of thing. I tend to think of you, and I think that most people who are your readers think of you as a real hero, as somebody, and and somebody who is a hero because she is, or we believe that she is, utterly fearless, incredibly brilliant, right? Like sharp, quick, all of that, right? So I was both humbled and really heartened to read your own experience in this book of the action in St. Patrick's Cathedral, where you say that you were sitting in the pews, and I'm not I'm not telling tales out of school, it's obviously, it's in the book, but you were sitting in the pews and the reaction of other parishioners to the kind of, as the, and it's a, it's a complicated story because it went a little bit differently than it was planned to go necessarily that day. But that when they started having the die-in, the act, uh, the the reactions of the parishioners sitting around you, kind of did put you back a little bit, where you felt like, okay, I'm not going to stand up, I'm not going to do this. Um, so it was just, it seems so totally human, and I think that everyone has had that experience when they're at an action, or certainly anybody speaking only for myself then as somebody who experiences shame, grew up Catholic. So, you know, I have that that with me. But can you talk a little bit about that feeling of anxiety and then also how obviously you have overcome that or subverted those feelings throughout your long history of activism? I think if you want to encourage people to become involved, you have to show mistakes Mm-hmm. That people make mistakes. You know, I'm a, a very strong supporter of Palestine, and I'm on the advisory board of Jewish Voice for Peace. But I wrote a book called Israel, Palestine, and the Queer International that really maps out my transformation from being ignorant and inactive to somebody who finally had to face the truth about Israel and Palestine and do something about it. And in that journey that I document in the book, I make so many mistakes that it's absolutely appalling. But I had to show that that's what it's all about. You know, it's all about the process of change. And so when it comes to the St. Patrick's Day action, when Jim Hubbard was making his film, United in Anger, he had footage of me saying that I disagreed with ACT UP disrupting the mass. And I, we showed it because I was wrong and we wanted to show ourselves being wrong. What happened there is that ACT UP had agreed to do an action that would be a silent die-in 
inside St. Patrick's Cathedral. Right. Now, I think that most people in ACT UP were Jewish or Catholic. I can't prove that, but that's my perception. But there were some Protestants who I think were very concerned about ACT UP looking like an anti-Catholic organization. The Catholics and the Jews were not concerned about that. Right, of course, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I think because of, of that concern, we ended up with this organizational agreement that we were going to do a, a silent die-in. So we all go in to do the silent die-in, and then Michael Petrellis jumps on a pew, and you can see the footage in Jim's film, and he starts screaming at Cardinal O'Connor, you're killing us, you're killing us, stop it, stop it, in his New Jersey accent. And total pandemonium happens, and the police are in there, people are screaming, and it was total chaos. So what was interesting was afterwards, when we had the post-action meeting at ACT UP, some people were angry at Michael. Some people, I mean, some people think Michael made it the great action that it was, you know, but some people were angry that he had violated the group agreement. But nobody ever suggested that he be thrown out of ACT UP. Nobody was ever thrown out of ACT UP because this was a movement of profoundly oppressed people. You have to have a supremacy ideology about yourself or some kind of dominant cultural position to decide that you can stay in and somebody else has to be thrown out. And we were not in that position. So I found, you know, that was very interesting. And when I finally got to interview Michael and I got to ask him, like, why did you do that, Michael? And he was like, well, nobody would let me in their affinity group. And I was really angry. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, it was really human. It was a human, messy moment. And he went with it and he made history and it turned out to be the right thing. But there's a lot of that in ACT UP's history. You know, there's someone who pretended that he was HIV positive when he wasn't. There's a person who stole $10,000. There were people who OD'd uh, from IV drugs and died while they were in ACT UP. I mean, there's a lot of mess. It was the opposite of respectability politics because it was a human movement that was based on human beings' needs and vulnerabilities. And it reflected that in every way. I'm wondering how the last year has been for you living through another pandemic, one that we already have a vaccine for when there's still no vaccine for AIDS, if it's made you reflect on what you experienced with ACUP and just the time of AIDS. The artist Zoe Leonard, who was very active in ACUP, she said that, you know, what AIDS revealed was more than the virus, it revealed the fissures in the society. And that's true of COVID. Every time that there's a cataclysm in this country, we see the economic inequality and the racism that's at the heart of this nation. And so that was similar. But what was really different is that COVID is a public collective experience that is discussed on television every night and in the newspapers. And AIDS was like our secret nightmare. Our goal was to get it into the public. That was that was what we were trying to do. And they they wouldn't let us in, you know. So that is very different. One of the things that's been amazing is to watch the second coming of Anthony Fauci. And when I handed in the book, it was before his canonization. I feel like America always needs a white male hero. So they pulled out Anthony Fauci. But, you know, when, as you're reading the book, and this was all written before, I really wasn't even thinking about him when I wrote this, but whenever people from ACT UP would go to Fauci with something that was needed to be changed, he would say no. You know, like um, the women who were trying to get the definition changed, they met with Fauci, and he didn't think there was any difference between women and men, and he didn't support their campaign. Richard Elevich, who was an activist for IV drug users, he went to Fauci and said, how come you're not enrolling IV drug users in experimental drug trials? And Fauci was like, oh, they're not reliable. And Richard was like, no, you cannot write off a whole 
class of people. Uh, when Jim Igo invented the idea of parallel track, that how the FDA could get people access to drugs that were not approved, and he wrote Fauci a letter describing his plan, Fauci didn't answer him. And Jim had to go three months later to a place where Fauci was giving a talk in public and, you know, confront him. So over and over, he was behind that. You know, he, he could not keep up with ACT UP. And ACT UP forced Fauci to give us a seat at the table by doing a huge demonstration at the NIH, by breaking into his office, by putting things in his files, by, you know, all that kind of messy stuff. He was forced to change, you know. So I'm, I'm in fact, I even have a photo in the book of people holding up a sign saying, Fauci, you're killing us. Sarah, as you process this history, you know, which you lived through and which you're writing in full view of the present, how do you think about the contemporary LGBTQ plus movement as a kind of social movement, which is not to say that it's ever one thing, just as ACT UP was never really just one thing. Um, but I just love to get your perspective on that as we kind of wrap up. I think that the great progress for queer people is that we are no longer forced into our own corner. And that today, when you look at the most radical movements, the movement against police violence, the movement for dreamers, Palestine solidarity, all of these movements have openly queer and trans people in leadership. And that that is where the most radical elements of the queer movement live, Hmm. is inside other social movements. There's still this very tiny group of gay rights people who are enormously funded and I don't even know what they really do. And I, they are not people that I really relate to. So when I look at the future of queerness in America, I'm looking at the leadership and rank and file of this broad range of radical movements. Well, I think that's a good note to end on. Thank you so much, Sarah, for being here today and speaking with us. Thank you. We've been speaking with Sarah Schulman. Her new book is Let the Record Show a political history of ACT UP New York, 1987 through 1993. Thanks for listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts. That will help us get the word out, and we'd love to hear from you. The producers of the LARB Radio Hour are Medea Ocher, Kate Wolf, and Eric Newman. The executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our sound engineer is William Broughton. Editorial production by Jake Levins. Our intro music was written and performed by Imogen Teasley-Vlotton. The publisher and editor-in-chief of the LA Review of Books is Tom Lutz. Mm-hmm.